like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a personal hero of mine and is almost a poster child for overcoming adversity and the power of the human spirit. He's a community leader, an educator, a former mayor, a Truman Scholarship recipient, essayist, and more recently, an author as well as special advisor for economic mobility and opportunity for the state of California. I am so honored today to sit down with Michael Derek Tubbs. Michael has broken records and broken ground pretty much everywhere he's gone in his life, from his start growing up in poverty in South Stockton, to the national debate competition stage in Cincinnati, to Stanford University, and back to Stockton once more, where he served as both the youngest council member and the youngest mayor in the city's history. Recently, Michael published his memoir, The Deeper the Roots, which is already receiving glowing praise from publications and figures all over the country, including Work in Progress guest Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. I'm looking forward to talking with Michael Tubbs, not only about what he's overcome on a personal level, but also what he's helped his community, his city, and his state overcome and dream of, and what we can all do to push forward toward a better future. Let's get started. Hi, Michael. So good to see you. It's so nice to see you. How are you? I am good, like content, happy, tired, but really good. Yeah. Does tired have to do with having a new baby? (laughs) Yeah, two kids under two. And also there's just so much going on. There's also so much happening in the world and so much you feel like you have to respond to and so much. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of good and just a lot of work, but but no complaints. Yeah, I feel that. I I wonder if you've been experiencing, you know, your own version of what I have. I've I've found that my 
my anxiety has been feeling high lately, but it's it's that specific kind of thing where the energy almost of you've just been called to the principal's office. I have this feeling of I've done something wrong because I feel like I can't possibly do enough mm. in response to what's going on in the world right now. Mm. And I've always... I've always felt called to be a, a doer, a solver, a helper, a person who shows up. And lately I feel like I'm I, I feel like I'm falling behind because there's so much and I'm worried that I'm not doing enough or that I don't know enough. And and I, I wonder if you as a person who I look at as as such a helper and such a problem solver and, and such a leader, if if you're feeling some of that kind of um, you know pandemic and social crisis anxiety as well. Yeah, I, I think mine manifest almost in a sort of, is it futile? Like, is it is, is everything I'm doing worth it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I think particularly it's been more acute since the baby because so much, like, I mean, like babies need mm-hmm. attention and babies need time. It's like, well, the time I spend doing A, I could be spent like playing with my daughter. I could be spent like, just being fully present with my, with my son. Yeah, I think particularly this last sort of couple of weeks with the child tax credit and, and it might be cut out of legislation and thinking of all the work and effort spent to get a majority. And so it's hard. And I have to remind myself that this is this is part of the complexities and messiness of of democracy, but also of humanity and sort mm-hmm. of just being really grounded in, in an understanding that. Um, I'm only accountable for that which I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to trust everyone's doing what they can do and that my pastor always says you can't pour out of an empty cup. So like you you have to mm-hmm. just make sure you're doing taking care of self so you can actually not be half of you trying to help a million things, but mm-hmm. but, but be all of you. So no, but I, so yeah, I, I think it's been more of a like where's the light at the end of the tunnel sort of fatigue? Like you're on this journey and you know there's a destination and you know you're moving in the right right direction, but you're at the part of the tunnel where it's just dark and you're tired and you don't see it. And I think that's kind of what I feel mostly now. Yeah. It's interesting to me, that thing that you said, balancing for you fatherhood with showing up and uh, you can't pour from an empty cup. I... I think honestly part of where it comes from a bit for me is is in my own version of family building, you know. I I have been such a an individual focused on the collective for so long and um really after some experiences, you know, at the earlier part of this decade I find myself in, was like, I'm good on my own. I, sh- I show up for other people. I've got my my friends who I love, and this is just what we do. And now I'm, I'm entering into this new stage in my life and, you know, getting ready to get married and think about what family looks like. And I have another person who I show up for every day. And so I am less available. And I am not reading the news for the four to five hours a day that I was. I'm only in it between being on set and being, you know, at home. I'm only in it for maybe an hour and a half or two hours a day. And I have this panic that I'm not doing enough. And two of the things actually that have been really helpful for me to remember um, are lessons I've learned from other activists who remind me that we're in a relay. 
You know, we're passing the baton all the time. You're not meant to carry it all the time. And I just watched Patrice Cullors give a talk discussing how every time we enter into these eras of immense progress, there is a backswing. You know, the, the agencies of power realize they're being challenged by the people, and we so far outnumber them that they get really vicious in the pushing toward the past. And it helps me to remember that it's cyclical, that this is something we have seen before. Granted, we haven't seen it with the power of digital disinformation and mm. foreign nations <laughs> meddling in elections and um, the the PR machine behind policing and the carceral system in, in quite this way. You know, even here in L.A., we see, you know, our, our DA getting blamed for policies that he literally doesn't enact or have control of um, <laughs> at all. He's like, I, that's actually not my jurisdiction, but you guys are saying it's my fault and you want to recall me for stuff that other people are responsible for here because people are scared that he's progressive. So so it's 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 good to understand how it happens, these, these sorts of machinations of historically abusive power. But it's hard to just feel like a little person who's trying to stand up, you know, being the David to the Goliath. You're like, come on, when do we, when do the Davids win? Yeah, and, I, and honestly, the most intense of those feelings happened when I lost re-election. Hmm. Um, because I was wondering. Even with the disinformation, and even with all the craziness and the lies, I just thought that because I was doing the right thing, because mm -hmm. we're making progress, because I had did it. I wasn't my first campaign, so I knew how to win campaigns. You have to raise the most money. Check. Mm -hmm. You have to have the most endorsements. Check. You yeah. have to knock on the most doors, check. You have to have the most volunteers, check. So doing all that and then reducing homicides, all like objectively good stuff mm -hmm. and still losing, I, it, it just felt so fundamentally unjust. And I remember being mm -hmm. very sort of angry um, and embarrassed. And I was thinking like, was the last, my entire 20s was spent in the sexiness of local government. It's like, well, did I just throw away my 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 20s for, for, for what? I remember after like a lot of prayer and thinking and meditation, I think a lot of the insights you shared um, became clear to me. And people would ask me, well, what did you learn? Or what, what, what lessons do you have from, from, from the loss? And the biggest one was that I recognize that progress comes at a price. Mm -hmm. That if you're going to really push things forward, the status quo is not the status quo because it just happened. The status quo is the status quo with intent. Yes. Meaning that there's going to be a pushback. And being so young and winning city council, winning mayor, winning all these policy fights, I was just like, well, maybe I, got, maybe I figured it out. <laughs> maybe I've cracked the code. And it was just a starch reminder that when you do this work, you have to be built in sort of resilience for the inevitable pushback. And the, and I think what's, what was telling for me, and I talk about a little bit in the book, was that the fact that I was shocked. The fact that I was hurt because I was fundamentally did not anticipate that as even an option. And I realized that naivety was very dangerous and, and it was good to have lost. So now in continuing these fights, I have a much more clear eyed that only mm -hmm. comes with experience. I don't know. This winning streak's not forever. Oh no. Like it's just like this losing is not forever. Right. And that these are temporary states, but you have to be really focused on the goal. But Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have learned that if I had one again. I'd be like, oh, you guys, come on. It's not that hard. You just have to talk to people and work. <laughs> it's like, yes, you yeah. have to do that. 
But there's yeah. going to be some conflict and it's not going to be linear. And that was such a great lesson. And, and, and so after being angry and upset, after about a week, I was like, okay, still a little bit hurt, very embarrassed, mm. but I have some clarity um, as to what's next. And I think I've learned at least part of what I'm supposed to learn from that experience. Yeah. I think when you forget the size of the system you exist in, that's when you have that naivete. Like last year, really going hard, and I, I think I've always gone hard on politics, but really going hard about um, the authoritarian and fascist risk to democracy that is Trumpism. I became a target for Breitbart. Hmm. And suddenly I was like, whoa, why am I getting shadow banned on Instagram? And why am I receiving thousands of death threats a day? Not like a couple a day, which I'm used to, like thousands and thousands. You know, I've got like guys from the U.S. Marine Corps who are oath keepers, like telling me they're going to hunt me down in a pack and, you know, make me pay. Like really scary shit. And some people framed it to me, (laughs) which is kind of insane. Um, But sort of a way where you have to think again about these sort of perspectives. They were like, well, you know you're really messaging effectively against that kind of state-sponsored violence when that violence comes for you. And it was my realization, much like you had to go, oh, I am a man who's been running progressively against a system. I went, oh, I am I am progressively m- messaging against fascism and fascism wants to step on my neck. Whoa. And it just wasn't, I I didn't have the perspective. And a friend of mine, similarly, you know, the people I went to for counsel said, you have to understand that when you have a microphone to 5 million people a day across, you know, three social channels, you're a threat, babe. Mm. And I was like, oh man, here I am just thinking I'm like in it to win it with all my, all my friends on the front lines. I forgot. I forgot what my ability to grab a megaphone might mean to the people who don't want people like us to have a megaphone. And it really made me have to sit and take stock and think about how, how do I continue to work in a system when I see how dangerous the system is? And when I have very rational individual fear but I have an even greater desire for collective liberation. How do we learn to balance mm. bigger things? How, 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 when we step outside of our, I'm just one, mm. and we realize how big these, these sort of battles between light and dark are, how do we take ownership in that space? And for me, it, I found some fuel in looking at history mm. and and in knowing you and knowing your story and, and diving deeper into your story and your book, and this might feel like a stretch, but it's a question I've really been thinking about as I've been wondering about each of our individual, but, you know, in the same bucket journeys over mm. the last couple of years in particular, I wondered, did you take stock looking back even at your own life? Because I think of your story, you know, you, you began and... South Stockton, you grew up in a single-parent household. You've talked about growing up through the difficulty of poverty and, and, and the looming malaise of your father's incarceration. And, and did, you, did you look back at your childhood and 
as the man you are today say, oh, everything in my life set me up to lead for people like me? Did that give you fuel when you were in the the moment of inspecting during your own reckoning? Yeah, no, I, I, I remember my first or second city council meeting. I was 22 years old in city council. 22, Michael. And I was terrified. I was scared as hell. I was like, I don't want to get up here and look stupid. I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to be embarrassing. I don't want everyone to see. Actually, he's a fraud. And then I remember sort of waiting for someone else to speak. We were talking about policing and and incarceration. I was waiting. I was going to wait for the elder councilman to speak. And no one did. So I remember clicking the button and saying, well, actually, I think we have to be very focused. Like, it's like the whole the whole spiel. And then my colleagues agreed with me. And I was like, oh, courage begets courage. And, and I can lead. Mm. And I realized back then that sort of my experiences gave me a unique insight in that it wasn't enough for me to be there as a representative if nothing was changing, if the conversation wasn't different. Mm-hmm. And then when I became mayor, I was adamant that, particularly being the youngest and the first, that that we had to, it had to be different. Like government should look different. Governing should look different. The priorities should look different because I'm different. And I I think that's what gave me the courage to do like basic income and to do the work Mm -hmm. of reducing, like I think all that just stemmed from I trust my people. And and, and these are the experiences I had. So so, and, and actually in writing the book, it also was helpful to chart sort of, even though I haven't been around that, that long, but it was helpful to chart, even for 30 years, how mm. all the setbacks and disappointments were almost like slingshots that were stretching for even further propelling. Mm. And, and so then, cause I finished the book in October. And then in November, I lost re-election, so I had to write again. And going back and reading it was also helpful to say, well, look, like you didn't get this fellowship. And look what happened next. She was on city council. You didn't get to this school. Ended up loving going to Stanford. You didn't get, mm-hmm. like, I've thought about all the times I messed up or something didn't happen. And I was like, it sucked at the moment, but it was actually just a stretching function to prepare mm-hmm. to go further than I could even imagine. So, so, so that also really helped. But uh, And the last thing I'll say, because it connects to the first thing we started with, but I also am trying to learn not to put as much pressure on myself because mm-hmm. I realize now I'm so much happier because mm-hmm. I don't have, I put so much pressure on myself to be not just a representative for the city, but a representative for an entire generation, a representative for an entire point of view. Like, I just feel like I had to like, like if I don't do it, no one else like me may ever get, may not ever get this position again. And I realized mm-hmm. I was just, just to be more gentle with myself because I was just so much yeah. to carry. And it would manifest in how I interact with my friends, how I interact with my family, and even how I interact with the people I want to serve. Because inside I had just all this anxiety, fear, like, what if it doesn't work? What if you fail? What if nothing changes? And, and, it, and mm-hmm. it just created a lot of extra stress on top of the stress of doing what you said into yeah. the challenging dominant paradigms. Mm-hmm. I wonder why that is that we have such a tendency to put pressure on ourselves in that way. Because you would never do it to your friends. You know, we celebrate our friends' wins, even if they're baby wins. <laughs> We're like, look at you, you did it. And then with ourselves, it's like, if I don't solve this crisis, I have failed. We, we forget that our incremental contributions add up to the sum of our life, you know? Hmm. 
I love that. I'm really fascinated by your early story. And of course, it doesn't surprise me one bit that we just like jumped into the present. And it was like, tell me exactly what's on your heart and soul right now, of course. (laughs) But normally I start with people and I do begin at their beginning because there are plenty of people who can, you know, see you on today's pod and go, oh my God, I love Michael Tubbs. Or they'll go, hey, I've heard about that guy. Or who is that guy? You know, wherever they fall on the spectrum of awareness. And I, I always like people to meet you and all of our guests as they began. Mm. And I, I would love for you to offer our listeners a bit of an overview of, you know, young, uh, young Mr. Michael Tubbs, you know, how you grew up and, and how your perspective began to be shaped by what was around you um, in your city. I think it's, I think it'll, it'll help connect the dots of, how did this man become a city council member at the young age of 22? So will, will you paint a little bit of that picture for the folks at home? Yeah. So first and foremost, Stockton, California. I'm born and raised in Stockton, California. That's home. Even though I don't live in Stockton anymore, that's still home. It's still so mm-hmm. much a part of sort of who I am and who, who, who I'll become. It's a, it's a challenging place, but a beautiful place. Um, and my mother, my aunt and my grandmother, there were like three... I call them like the three walls of mothers. Like the, all three of them equally made it their charge to parent. Because um, my mother was 16 when she had when she was pregnant with me and mm-hmm. 17 when I was born. And my father, he's he was in a juvenile detention facility when I was born and has been incarcerated for 26 of the 30 years I've been alive, including ever mm-hmm. since I was six years old. So the part of it, I mean, part of it is like it, the difficulty, but... Part of it was also just a phenomenal effort that my mom, my aunt, and grandmother put in. And I realize now as a parent, what they did that was so special is that they literally gave up their life for me and my cousins and my little brother. They just ceased mm-hmm. to have, it was work, kids, work. There was no, because I think about myself and I'm like, okay, I have to do this event. So I need someone to watch the kids for this time. I have to go here. I need to travel there. And they had none of that. Their life, their, they made it their whole focus and mission of life was to parent. And they mm-hmm. did such a phenomenal job. And I feel in many ways, my kids are so in a better material position than, than I'm, I was in for sure. But I still, in terms of internal battles I have with myself now, part of it is like, man, am I going to, like, I, I can't give up everything and just like make, make, make them my life. I feel like, man, that's, that really helped me. Um, mm-hmm. and I went to public schools and I guess early on really recognized that for a lot of people just had expectations of me and my ability or who I would become just based off the fact that I didn't have a, my father wasn't present or just based off the fact that my mom was young or just based off the fact that I was black or just mm-hmm. based off the fact I was from South Stockton. And I noticed that some people would like internalize that and sort of act out in ways that fulfilled or confirmed those low expectations. And I just resolved to do the exact opposite, but to the hundredth degree mm-hmm. and just make it like proven wrong, proven wrong, proven wrong. And a lot of that came from my mom. And then I also, uh, my grandmother was like a spiritual bulwark. So spent a lot of time in church. Like I was like a child preacher essentially for the time I was like, seven to 15. And I mean, I think that also was a great experience, but it also put a lot of pressure or because I felt like, okay, if I'm going to be in front of the congregation, 
I used to do everything perfectly. I, I, I can't make, I can't, you know, there's just so much pressure yeah. and so much like you need to be the example. You, you need to be the one people like, I want to follow his lead. But I think that leadership and that ability and the, and the opportunity to be in front of the congregation and speak really helped prepare me for, for what's later. So longer story short, I um, ended up going to Stanford and that's when my life just, it was like a slingshot. That's just when my life just took off because it was the first time in my life, which sounds really basic, but it's true. It was the first time in my life where all the basics were taken care of with no stress. Mm. Like I knew I was going to eat three times a day, no stress. Like there was no constant economic stress and anxiety over how are we going to pay this mortgage? How are we going to pay these mm. lights? Could you work extra hours to help? It was just, this, just all that was off the table. So all I had to do was write papers and read books. And my classmates would be so stressed. And I would be like, yeah, this is such a privilege. Like, all we have to do is read a book. And even if you fail this class, you'll get a job because you're at Stanford. Like, this is, I say, you guys, this is not pressure. This is so easy. Yeah. And and I think from there, that's when I also recognized that my classmates were smart. But they weren't necessarily smarter than the people I grew up with in Stockton. Like, my classmates worked hard. But they didn't necessarily work hard. Like it, it mm-hmm. just really dissuaded me of all these notions I had going in that I was successful because I was special and because I worked hard mm-hmm. and I was exceptional and and I, I do everything right and and that's why I'm successful. And I pulled mm-hmm. myself up on my bootstraps. And then I got to college and met people who smoked all day every day, who did hard drugs, who like just were <laughs> didn't do their home like and were still successful. And I was like, wait, something. Or who are very lazy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, wait. And they're successful too. And that's really where I began to think about sort of, okay, well, why do I have to work twice as hard to get to the same place as someone who doesn't have to work at all? Because their parent happens mm-hmm. to be on the board of trustee. Mm-hmm. And, that is, and that's what drove me to policy. So I spent all my mm-hmm. time in college focused on policy, policy. Po- mm-hmm. Like, where, how, how, did, how did this happen? <laughs> like, if, if it's not an act of God, where are the actual rules on the books? And then interned in the White House under President Obama. And while there, one of my cousins, Donnell James, was murdered at a house party. Mm-hmm. And it was really that sort of juxtaposition between like being at Stanford in the White House, like the height of American success yeah. and feeling very powerless to do anything to help my family. Like my, and it's like, well, what's even the point of me being here? What's like, is everything like, like I mentioned earlier, what's the point? Like, is there any, that do I, do I need to care about the world? Can I just be out for me? If this, if it's going to be pain and suffering anyway, like why not enjoy, why not grab these moments of joy and individual success? And then going back home, I made the crazy decision as a 21 year old that during my senior year in college, I'm going to run for office. And it was really to work out feelings of survivor's guilt. Um, it was yeah. really to channel that pain and that anger in a way that wouldn't be self-destructive or Hinduistic. And the older I get, the the more I'm like tra- trying to rationalize. Are you sure? But 19, 20, 21 year old, I was like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. I feel it. <laughs> like mm-hmm. This is exactly what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And long story short, I, I ran for city council. Um, I ended up winning and spent my 20s <laughs> in local government. I'm trying to make my hometown better. I love it. So there's a couple things that jump out at me 
This notion that you talk about when you were at school looking around, one of the things that fascinates me, especially in reading the works of, of all of the civil rights giants who've come before us, whose you know, shoulders we stand on and, and who we study to try to build on in our own generation, is that some of us are granted the permission to experiment and make mistakes and like be wild kids, and some of us are not. And when you talk about what you witnessed, you know, getting to Stanford and going, oh, wait a minute, like, that guy smokes weed all day, that guy parties <laughs> hard on the weekends, like, in in certain social circles, those things are seen as fine. And in other circles, you know, God forbid you ever have weed on you, you're going to get a charge and be in the system for the rest of your life and maybe be jailed um, for decades for something that people are now, you know, selling in hipster packaging. Um, <laughs> none of that is lost on me, you know, the difference in how we experience. And I've also seen, you know, a lot of people from those worlds, you know, the Stanfords, the Harvards, the um, the grad schools that are fancy, the people who wind up working on Wall Street who really get upset when we have conversations about privilege. And one of the ways I like to think about it is stress is stress, right? Like what you're going through affects your body. You stepping out of Stockton and into Stanford had a larger purview worldview on the stressors that affect people. Like you mentioned, how are we going to pay this mortgage? How are we going to keep these lights on? Who's going to carry extra shifts? So you get to a world where people are only stressed about how am I going to make my grades, do this paper, live up to all the expectations I have on this campus? And you're like, that's it? And, and I have had to think about that in my own world. I grew up in a household where it's like the American dream immigrant story, right? Like my dad moved to the U.S., he went to school here, he hustled hard, he started a business, he became an employer of a hell of a lot of people. He is an immigrant success story. So I grew up in a household where we weren't like loaded, but I didn't worry about where my next meal was coming from or if my parents were going to keep the lights on. And now when I am experiencing the stress of the expectations of my world, my career, what everyone expects of me, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to be, the kind of leader I'm supposed to be, I'm always supposed to be available, I'm always supposed to be happy, I'm supposed to know all my lines and everybody else's and do, you know, <laughs> medical procedure rehearsals um, during my lunch breaks and like all of these things. I'm stressed. <laughs> and the way I think about it, when I check in with my own relative privilege, I don't dismiss my stress, hmm. but what I do remind myself of is, you know what? These are champagne problems. I am so lucky to have stress from my dreams coming true on my plate. Hmm. And so I acknowledge hmm. what my body is experiencing, but I always try to be deeply grateful about hmm. the perspective of stress I am not going through. How mm. can we be more gracious with each other? And I believe if we come from that place of, of more graciousness for the experience of our friends and neighbors and community members, then we get into how do we create not only sounder treatment between me, you, and each of us, how do we get into 
shaping policy to create graciousness Mm. for communities. Because that's what I think of as policy. You know, you said it. Everybody goes, you do really unsexy, long-term political work. And I think that's why progressives lose sometimes. Because everybody expects the own, the progress to come as fast as like Ted Cruz's shit-talking tweets. (laughs) But the the garbage comes fast and hot because it's easy to turn over. Progress is long and it requires dedication. You know, garbage politics are like trashy one night stands on bad late night TV, and and progressive love is like committing to getting married. Man, it's mm. long and you got to do the work. And so I'm I'm curious about how you might frame if we think about about it as love, how do you frame the study of policy Mm. for people listening? Because your policy has so clearly always been rooted in loving commitment. Mm. And I I want other people to to experience that inspiration, to take that charge Mm. um, for policy in their own communities. Yeah, and and first, let me just say, um, I love the way in which you talked about grace. Um, and grace being sort of a, a, a worldview and also manifests itself in policy. I used to tell my staff all the time, they would get annoyed with me. I'd be like, give grace. Let's give some grace. Mm, Let's give some grace. A, it was a very annoying. Yes, they should have had typos in the thing. We're going to deal with the issue, but let's just give grace. They're not terrible people, mm-hmm. um, even with some of our adversaries. But no, I think for me, sort of love is what animates the, the kind of how I think about policy, but it really comes from like, not like an anemic love, but like the love you describe, like the love that's a verb, the love of humanity that leads to anger at mistreatment of humanity. Like the, like mm-hmm. the love of all people so that injustice just really makes me up. Like I'm frowning now, like makes me upset. And it's also perplexing. Like, why would we want to live in a world with so with, with, with poverty when we actually don't have to have poverty? Like love is what animates the work for basic income because like I would love to see everyone have the opportunity yes. to provide the basics. Like I would love for people to have the ability to dream. I would love for people to have the opportunity. And I love what you said earlier. It's not about not having stress because everyone has stress. It's about the source of that stress. And I would love mm-hmm. for people to be stressed about their dreams coming true and the responsibility that comes with that. Like that just yes. sounds like such an incredible world to be in. And, and I think sort of that that ethos comes from my, my faith tradition. I just remember growing up in Sunday school and hearing like God is love and, and hearing that you should love your neighbor like yourself. And I'm a super practical person. So I took that at face value. <laughs> I was like, all right, I should love my neighbor as myself. So what's good for me is good is good for you. And so about my how I tried to govern when I was mayor and my worldview remains the same is that I just want everyone, regardless of effort, to have the same opportunities I have and then let their effort dictate what happens with that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I, I want every kid to have the ability to get the great education that my kids will receive. Mm-hmm. regardless of what their parents do for a living. I want everybody to have the opportunity to go to a great school and mm-hmm. that they're all given a great preparatory training and they have qualified teachers. Like, I, I just really think what's good enough for me is good for everyone. It sounds very yeah. basic. That's literally how 
I would read policy briefs, how I would govern, how I come up with policy ideas. It was like, well, what would I want? Mm-hmm. And how do I extend that same? And, and the last thing I'll say is, and this has come up repeatedly, um, particularly with all the basic income pilots that are happening, mm-hmm. is I have to say the same thing over and over. So if you have to tell people, they're like, are you surprised by the findings? I'm like, no, because people are people. And we can't think of people as the most extreme case of people we've met. Which is true, but they're they're anomalies. Those are the, like in, on both ends. Cause I think we want people, we like really govern and think of our country and our world as polar exceptionals, like exceptionally great people mm. who come from nothing and through blah 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 blah, and then exceptionally bad people who are creating harm and don't want to work and just steal and just take. And we make those two poles the center of our political discussion say either people are this or that when that's like literally the extremes. Most of us are like in the middle where people who mm-hmm. are going to spend money on our kids who want a decent house. Yeah. Money to go out to eat. Money to buy our kids some things. It's have fun on the weekends. Like we like, and I, and, and, and People get on my nerves, but that's so weak and anemic. But I think that's the hard, harder work because it makes yeah. us think about sort of why do we have a society or why do we have a world where those things aren't happening beyond individuals' efforts, beyond individual acti- ability. And, and that's a much more harder um, conversation than just saying, well, mm-hmm. if people work hard, like my dad did, they'll be fine. Or if people made different choices than my dad did, they wouldn't be in jail. It's like, that's so simple, so re- reductionistic. But it was love that really got me to think about, no, there has to be something deeper here. <laughs> like yeah. this, 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 that explanation doesn't make sense. No, it really doesn't. And I, I think when we consider how to come back to the middle where everyone lives, look, you can be an exceptional person and have a bad day. You can be an exceptional person who screws up and gets arrested. I know a lot of exceptional people who've gotten arrested just because I read the news, <laughs> you know? And and vice versa, there's a lot of people who've been written off who've proved that they're capable of exceptional things. And I'm curious, you know, we talk a lot about your work as a city councilman and becoming mayor. And I I really want to get into all the UBI work that you helped to pilot and and for folks at home, you know, that's a reference to universal basic income. Um, But but before we we move into that, I am really curious what it was like for you. You know, you mentioned that while you were at Stanford, you interned in President Obama's White House. What did that enable you to see? Because there's a man who ran on this idea that we can show up for each other, who had a lot of really visionary goals and who was met with a lot of railroading and, you know, who also is a human who can't be perfect on every issue all the time, but transformational for the nation, undoubtedly. What, what did you learn within that space that you took with you as you then went home to forge your early political career? Yeah, it's really a a couple of things. Um, Number one, like my first vote was for President Obama. 
my mm-hmm. I had like seven Obama Hope and Change T-shirts. I was yeah. an Obama organizing fellow, so entering in that White House just was such a wow, wow, wow. And while there, I learned number one, it's gonna sound really basic, but it was revolutionary to me. Government is not like some impersonal institution or bureaucracy. Government is people. And I would see sort of decisions be made one way or another, depending on what happened the night before, or depending on did someone have their coffee this morning, or depending on where people's attention was. I would see grants and applications and resources go just to people that had a relationship with someone in the building. Because, I mean, there, there's no... It's very subjective in many cases because there's no way anyone can know everything. So it's like, okay, who are the cities, the mayors, the people that are top of mind? How do we support them? Because it's hard to help mm-hmm. everyone. And that was that was that was game changing. Like, oh my gosh, this is all people in relationships. That seemed much more doable than this like big impersonal institution that exists. It's ubiquitous, but I can't quite get in. I don't quite know who is government. It's it's a it's a building. It's like no, it's people, and that was mm-hmm. revolutionary. And the second thing, and you mentioned this earlier, just the pace of change. I was there in 2010, and I remember so vividly where sort of the Tea Party had just taken the house, um, which is mm-hmm. which is funny because back then that was like the worst political thing ever. Like, oh my gosh, the Tea Party, and those I, I will take the Tea Party over insurrectionists mm-hmm. every day of the week. The Tea Party mm-hmm. seems weak and anemic compared yeah. to this these crazy insurrectionists. And then he had to make a deal where he extended the Bush era tax cuts in exchange for extending unemployment insurance. And I remember the interns, you know, interns, we think we know everything. So we're debating the merits, <laughs> like, like we have any say in the decision. And I remember being torn because it was like, those Bush era tax cuts, like that was contributing to our deficit. It was like, mm-hmm. wasn't going to regular people. It was just at against everything he had ran on and Mm -hmm. hope and change. But then remember unemployment insurance, I've thought of like family members in Stockton who had been laid off during the recession, who really needed that unemployment check for the winter. And and that's why I realized that, wow, politics is so messy and so pragmatic and your values are pure, but the outcomes oftentimes aren't. And that was just a huge realization as a 20 year old because before, I was like, I was starting to get disillusioned. Like, man, this is not working. Like, we still have all these problems. He's been in office for two years, and we still have all these things that haven't been done. And it's like, now I'm like, wow, he did a lot in two years. And thank God he did, because they didn't let, they weren't going to let him do anything as progress comes at a price. At some point, it was like, that's enough. Pass the baton and it's related to someone else. Those are two biggest things. And, and, and the last thing I learned was that oftentimes the people who make decisions come from very insular worlds. They oftentimes they all go, not just to the same colleges, the same damn boarding school, <laughs> the same damn yeah. high schools. So, like, so and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a particular worldview, a particular like habitus around it that really sees the rest of the country through a prism of a paper mm-hmm. or a prism of a briefing uh. versus like actual real people. Like the people mm-hmm. making decisions oftentimes have no real direct contact with anyone or no real relationship with anyone actually impacted by said policy. Yes. And I saw that as, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, like, 
I wouldn't dare make a decision on this issue without at least talking to somebody who's affected by this issue because I don't know. But I would see that all the time. It's like, well, what's the report say? Or what's the recommendation? Or what's the easiest thing? And it's like, that's, wow. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that we can all just be reduced to statistics. You know, statistics help me make sense of my feelings a lot where I'm like, okay, what does the math say? Because emotions <laughs> are not mathematical and math is not emotional. But I think the the math has to be the doorway through which we then meet people. And a lot of people stop at the door. And, you know, you're you're very polite when you say, it's fine that all these people go to the same boarding schools. I'm like, fuck no, it isn't. <laughs> but I will say it's not to criticize the school, the educational institution, yeah. the opportunity. That's not it. Yeah, yeah. The, the person who phrased it the best that I ever heard, I listened to Oprah interview this woman, Sister Joan, who's like this. Yeah, yeah Sister Joan. You know her. You know, she's like an icon of, of feminist leadership out of the Catholic Church, which seems like a paradox, but it's true. And she talked about wanting to usher in, you know, an age of female leadership. And Oprah pushed back and was like, but the church is a patriarchy. Like, how does this work? And she said it so beautifully. I was like, God, I can't wait to be 92 and wax poetic in five <laughs> words, right? Because I'm very long-winded at this point. Still. And she just said, you can't have, which we currently do, the men, you can't have people with 50% of the information making 100% of the decisions. Oh, wow. Women have the other 50% of the wow. information. So wow. imagine what what communities living on the poverty line, the information they hold that the that the communities who go to prep schools just don't have. It's yeah. not a criticism of either side if you can recognize that everyone's yeah. information in totality can be the key. I love that. And that was actually the insight I was trying to articulate with my three points was that sort of you have people making decisions for everyone with very very, very diluted, specific, micro information. Mm-hmm. And the way that the sister said it is brilliant. I'm going to steal that, so thank you. I love it. I I just, I constantly make the point and go, I got to give credit to this lady. But <laughs> I I just, I love it. It, it really, um, it codified something I understood to be true, but that I didn't quite know how to explain either. When you you think about what you learned about politics just being people and how imperfect that can be. Um, And certainly these reduced perspectives in many of those rooms. How did you then bring all that home, that, that more personalized understanding of a system and, and then run for city council and then decide to run for mayor? Like, what is that journey? Yeah. Well, part of it coming back, and, and realizing that people were getting, because at the time, Senator Booker was mayor of Newark, mm-hmm. and Newark was getting all this love. And I thought there was some, like, mathematical equation that showed that investment in Newark was the best city to invest in because of these eight, nine, ten reasons. Mm-hmm. Which may or may not be true, but it was all because of Cory Booker. Like, people liked Cory Booker, and people wanted to be a part of what he was doing. And I realized that, although not a perfect way for change, for sure, that at least in the political system, the right leader could excite and motivate people to look at a situation, a city, mm-hmm. a different way. And that's yeah. what sort of made me think running for office in Stockton could do something. Because I thought, even if I don't know anything, 
I could bring in people who know something and sort of mm-hmm. also bring in some of that community wisdom and we could govern mm-hmm. and, and, and do some things. And just in, in Stockton was interesting because it's small, much smaller than the entire country that was like easier to organize. And like, okay, I need, there's seven people on the city council. The city council sets policy for the city. I need three other people to agree with me and we can mm-hmm. get anything we want done. <laughs> I was like, so I set out to build relationships to make sure anytime I had an idea, whether there was a Republican or my council was three Republicans, three Democrats when I was city councilor and four Republicans and two Democrats when I was mayor. It was like, well, I just need to always have four votes. And then, so it was just, it helped me really organize and make this my, macro issue of how you change stock is really small. Well, you need four votes. <laughs> to do anything, you need four votes. And, yeah. and that was helpful. And then it also taught me, like, I don't have all the information, particularly when you're in office because everything's filtered. Mm-hmm. You're so busy. Your attention's divided. You don't get, you get the report and you have to make a decision based off some, 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 something you read. So I was very adamant about building relationship with community members and community groups and building sort of community power and, and a feedback loop. So I just wasn't hearing from city staff. I was also hearing from community. And it wasn't yeah. still 100%, but I had more of the information. And, and a lot of those, those community folks really shaped my priorities. Um, it started when I was running for city council. All the consultants said, only talk about the city's fiscal bankruptcy. That's what people care about. And you're 21 years old, so don't take pictures with kids. Like, no one needs to be reminded of your age. But in talking to community folks, they're like, oh, we've been the bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they were the, the city's financial bankruptcy wasn't even top five issue for them. They were talking about an absence of leadership on these very big issues of crime and violence, et cetera. And then they all loved the fact that I was young. The older the, older the person was, the more they loved the fact that I was 21 years old. And they were like, no, we want you to, we love the fact that you're young. We need some young blood in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we had pic- the people who've been in there haven't <laughs> been fixing the problem. Hello. So so we had pictures with me and kids. We talked. We didn't talk about the bankruptcy at all of the city. We talked about more of a moral or a, a leadership bankruptcy. We're the top vote getter that came from listening to community. And then when I was on city council, I had all these grand plans and spreadsheets and, and docs. And talked to community. They said, "Listen, close down this liquor store across the street. We need a health clinic and open up a bank." And those are all like big things, but I was like, those aren't the key issues. Like, we need to do this, we need to do that. But in listening to them, we did those things, all those things. They have been trying for like 50 years to do them. And we also did some of the other stuff I wanted to do that I thought was more structural. Yeah. So, and then after doing that for three and a half years, the police chief and the head of the like Chamber of Commerce approached me saying, Tubbs, we want you to run for mayor. <laughs> And I was like, me? Because <laughs> I, I expect like my folks to be like, Tubbs, you should run for mayor. I'm, everyone tells you, like, oh, you're cool, you're smart, you can talk, you should be mayor, yeah. you should be president. But I was like, not the business council and not the police chief. So when they had that conversation with me, I thought to myself, there's a winning formula here. If I got the two most unlikely people yeah. to say, Tubbs, you need to run. Will you run, please? Well, be- like begging me to run like we need you to run and not because they didn't know me but because they did they had seen me work for yeah. four years and i was not just as crazy as i am now talking just talking very much the same as I'm t- i talk today they're like <laughs> they're like we don't agree with you on everything <laughs> but we do agree that you're that you'd be the best person for mayor for the city we really want you and that's what 
made me run from here, but I was terrified. I had, mm. we talked about sort of stupid mistakes. I had just been arrested for a DUI while on city council two years previous. So I was like, mm. if I run, you know that's going to come up. And black man committed a crime. There's a mug shot. Like, do I really want that heat? Like, I just, mm. <laughs> just want to be able to go to the restaurant, right? So how did you get over that? That's a really interesting point. We said this earlier. Lots of exceptional people have bad days. And if we look at the rates of DUIs across this country, lots of people think, oh, I'll just have a drink at dinner. I'll be fine by the time I drive home. Clearly not true for so many of our neighbors. How do you reckon with that? How did you reckon with that both as a city council member and then approaching your run for mayor? How, yeah, how, do, well, you, how do you explain to people? Yeah, well, well, when it happened, I was, oh, I was just so embarrassed. Mm. Still embarrassed now. Like, even now I cringe. Like, oh, yeah. do, I, do I mention it? <laughs> so, so embarrassed. Um, and part of it was because I'd always, my, tell, always told myself I would never end up like my dad. I would never be incarcerated. I would yeah. never be in jail. I will never get in trouble with the law. Yeah. I would never fulfill these stereotypes, et cetera. And then to actually do it, it's like, oh my gosh. And then, but terrible decision. But what was helpful and what I learned from it was what you said earlier. And it's Brian Stevenson says this all this time, all the time. Like, imagine if we lived in a society where we recognized that we were all more than the worst thing we've ever done. Yes. Which which doesn't mean no accountability. Like I still had to go to my DUI classes. I still had to Still paying high insurance. No, I think I I just stopped my last high insurance payment last year. I'm back to normal insurance payments. I um I couldn't drive for two months. I had to have my mom take me to city council meetings because mm. I couldn't drive. Like how embarrassing, right? Like so just being constantly reminded of that. But I also recognize that we spend a lot of time telling people what happens when you do everything right. But yeah. there's not enough time spent talking about what happens when you mess up. Like you shouldn't mess up. But as a human being, you probably will. And yeah. how do you actually atone? How do you actually repent? So I was very adamant. I didn't make any excuses. <laughs> I, people were like, you were set up. I was like, I was not set up. I set myself up. I shouldn't have drank and I shouldn't have drove. Like that, like that, that is the setup. It's me. There was no mm-hmm. plot to get me. And even if there was, I, I still made the choice, right? Right. Um, and I was, I, and I was actually sorry though. I actually was so sorry. I was so embarrassed for the city. I was just embarrassed. I was like cringing, and and I had thought that that mistake would preclude me from. I was like, why would I run from? It's only been two years. I'm running for a different office. The mayor has so much, but in talking to people and seeing the support. And also recognizing that a big part of service and of service leadership is being selfless, right? And I recognize that my fear of running was centered on me and centered on my feelings and centered on me not wanting to have to relive that painful moment or me not having to explain it over and over again or me not wanting to see me on my mugshot on TV or in the mail or on Facebook. And I recognize that as a leader, you have to think about us, we, Mm -hmm. them, right? And it was like, well, 
what happens if I don't run? Look at the people who are running. And you mean tell me a little bit of hurt feelings on your end because you made a stupid decision or to stop you from serving all these people you claim to love who are asking you to step up and serve? Yeah. And that's how the decision was made. And, and, and my worst suspicions were confirmed. <laughs> I remember, I talk about this in the book, I remember working out, and I hate working out, so the fact that I was at the gym was a stretch. I was already <laughs> uncomfortable. I was already feeling insecure. And then I'm looking up at the damn TV, and you know gyms have like 20 TVs? Oh, no. All the TVs. <laughs> you just oh. see my mugshot. And I'm like, I just want to shrink. I'm like, <laughs> and I just have to, and it's like, Michael Tubbs takes, because oh, I, was, I was working with folks who are formerly incarcerated to help with criminal justice policy. It's like, who does Michael Tubbs listen to? And it showed oh. my face in the mugshot. And right after, it was like, he has, uh, he listens to You see to how red my face yeah, is yeah, turning? Yeah, like, yeah, my so my sympathy anxiety for you is, oh my God. <laughs> it, it, oh my it was God. one thing if I was at home, Sophia. I was literally at the gym. I hate the gym. I felt very self-conscious already being at the gym. Oof. And then, so anyway, that and it happened, and it sucked, but that was it, right? Like it, it sucked, but it was like okay, and I was isn't like okay. That, <laughs> and isn't that interesting? You're like, oh, this is so horrible, but wait, the world's not ending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I like, just keep going. I keep going on this treadmill, and then I also <laughs> keep going in this race. Like what? I, no, I left. I got off the treadmill. Though. I said nobody <laughs> would ask me that. Okay, that fair, you? fair, 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 fair. <laughs> but no, and and then like. It became not one DUI, but I had four DUIs. Or I had three. It, 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 it became so silly. And then I recognized in what we talked about earlier mm. that part of it was that it was a real threat. That mm-hmm. part of it was like the forces that be, the people who are used to controlling city politics, didn't know what to do with a young activist from the South Side with his dad in prison who went to Stanford, who has all the business support, yeah. the police chief support. And the act, like, like they're like, what? Like, you couldn't divide and conquer the way you usually would in the political yeah. system because, like, everyone, it's a really, a, a really huge big tent. Wow. Um, so there's so many questions I have about that moment in your life. I mean, what, what did it feel like to win? And and I, oh. I and I know it's important to acknowledge what you're saying. You had support from every vertical in the city. So I understand that it didn't. It probably wasn't a total shock, but but to win by such a staggering percentage and to be so yeah. young, like, what did that no, feel like? No. I mean, particularly in the primary, mm. um, there was like nine people, and I won mm. the primary by like nine points, and I was the only person being attacked because the people, the second yeah. and third place candidate, should have consulted and made a pact to knock me out the first round. And then they would just figure out and how they run against each other in general. But let's get Tubbs out. We both want him out. So I was shocked because at that time for the primary, it wasn't sure if I was going to make it to the top two. It was wow. it was like he might, he might not. And and you know, there's always naysayers like, well, Stockton's never had a black mayor. Why do you think you'll be the first? Or there's never mm-hmm. been a mayor this young at any city of over 100,000 people. What makes you think you're going to be the one? Or or you didn't kiss this ring, or you voted this way. And Ugh. so there was real. and then there's, I mean, politics about power. So there's also people very angry that mm-hmm. I was even running. Like, how mm-hmm. dare you think you could run? So that felt so like, wow. Mm. 
Like, wow, once again, I listened to that little small voice that was like, you should do this. And it felt scary and it felt crazy. And it, it, it seems inevitable now, but it wasn't then. And also because when I ran, it was either run for mayor or run for city council. Like my seat wasn't safe. Well, if I lost, yeah. I was done. <laughs> if I lost, I had no seat. Oh, God. <laughs> so people were like, why would you take such, such a risk? You could run in four more years or eight more years. You're young. So it felt so validating. And then when I won in the general, I, we knew we were going to win, but by the margin, 72% on the mm. same night Donald Trump was elected, Oof. I just felt like, wow. And I felt so proud for my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother. I felt Oof. so proud for the city. I just, It just felt like, wow, we have turned the page. And then also I felt a little bit overwhelmed. I was like, oh my gosh, all these people's hopes and expectations. Yeah. And this is not Beverly Hills. This is this is a, like this is like real structural issues, real challenges. And and being on city council before, I also knew the limitations of the office. So I was like, I can't even solve all this. Like, like all mm-hmm. this stuff, I'm not even sure I'm even be able to get to. And also thinking about imagine coming back one day and being the mayor of Los Angeles or Pasadena. Like, like and imagine, like, just the feeling you have. Like, because you remember the fair. You remember yeah. um, the community center. And you're thinking yeah. about, okay, how do I take care of those things? So it's also, like, our favorite word today. It was a love thing, too. Like, wow, mm. I love my city so deeply. But my city also loves me. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and the people trust me. So it was it was such an um, overwhelming feeling of pride, a little bit of fear, a lot of excitement and mm. sort of a confirmation, like, okay, mm. that was the right decision. How, when you when you achieve something like that, and, and to your point, now you're responsible for your whole city, how do you set your priorities as mayor? And and what were yours? Yeah, I. Um, it's tough because it's an elected position, so it has to be community priorities, but community doesn't have complete information. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, and, or what might be a priority actually may not be the most important thing for the solvency and the safety of, of mm. the city. Um, so I tried to do a nexus between sort of what was doable, which isn't the sexy stuff, but also what would be aspirational. So definitely cr- crime, education, and, and poverty were sort of my, my three things, knowing mm-hmm. that we could have the most direct impact on crime and education um, as a mayor of a city. And poverty, we would have to try experiments. We would have to try different things. But mm-hmm. that was like my root cause analysis of the, of the issue. And then also just this unsexy stuff of getting our fiscal house in order and, and, and making sure we had a reserve policy and making sure we had finances and, 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 and making sure that we were um, that money was being spent in a way it was supposed to because no one cares but me. I was so proud to be chair of the audit committee when I was on city council. So I was like mm-hmm. auditing the books and knew where things were, how things were being spent. And we corrected like 121 material deficiencies and got, anyway, no one cares. So I care. Um, That's the stuff I love. <laughs> you know what I think? Somebody asked me once because obviously we're all very involved in political <laughs> activism. Somebody said, okay, well, Let's say, boom, snap your fingers. Tomorrow you're the president. What's the first thing you do? And I said, I would do a fiscal audit of the entire United States budget and every state budget in the country. And everyone was like, what? I was like, oh, yeah, I'd bring in the forensic auditors who, like, sue movie studios. 
That's what I would do. Where is the money? Where's the money? We have so much money. Why don't we spend it on people? What are we doing? And everyone was like, oh, shit. So when you're like, I was on the audit committee, I'm like, how did the numbers look? I yeah. love that stuff. I want to know. Yeah, and, it's, and I think and this is not even answer to your question, but I also recognize from doing that work that the answer isn't always more money. Like the no. answer is spend. Like I tell it all the time. I'm good for more money, but let's make sure we're spending what we have. And we spend that in a way yes. that's good. And then if it's not enough, let's get more money. But right now, you can't even tell me what the delta is. You can't even tell me how much more we need. You're just saying we need yeah. more. And I can't sell that. Well, um, no. Especially because clearly it's not just about more. It's about the fact that <laughs> we're just setting a bunch of it on fire. So, like, let's take away the matchbook. Maybe that's where we start. Or let's make, or let's make you spend the money. I see it's so <laughs> annoying when we would have surplus. And oftentimes it would be because they would budget... But they would budget for staff positions that they knew they weren't going to hire, but they would just have that extra money. And then they would carry over to the next year and then just become part of the budget. So that's like a, a way folks are able to increase their budgets in, in local government. It's, it's crazy. Like There's all these like things people do. It's like, no, spend the money we have allocated this year. Yeah. This year. Especially spend money it. that's supposed to go to people. Anyway. Do stuff. Oh, that's wild. That's wild. So I want to ask, when you talk about spending the money and getting the money spent on people. How did you make a UBI happen? Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned sort of priorities, poverty being one. I had a team of, of fellows and I'm a nerd. So I, I don't, it sounds like I just talk and I just do things, but I do actually read and think before, not before I speak, but before I do, I at least think <laughs> and read. And I said, research, how can we, how can we end poverty? I said, I just want to end poverty. Like we end poverty we're good. They're like, what? I'm like, seriously, look up how to end poverty. And I told mm -hmm. them, I said, I want a policy, not a program. I know about career to college. I, I get that. We're going to do that stuff too. But what's a policy? And they came back with this idea of a guaranteed income. But this was like in 2017. And a lot of the guaranteed income things happening were happening abroad at like $1, $2, $3 a day increments. <laughs> so... And I remember reading about basic income in college. I knew Dr. King was a proponent. And I always was curious as to why, how we not, like, why does anyone talk about it? So then when they came back to that, I said, okay, but you guys, I'm hearing everything's like internationally. Like I, I get people are in poverty, but I'm not sure $3 a day in stock is going to do. Like I, I, I can't roll out like that for my folks. So that, they're like, no, 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 no. It'd be bigger here. I said, but no one's doing it bigger. Everything's like $3 a day, a dollar a day in, in, in microfinancing and stuff. And I said, well, go do some more research. And then the next week, I was at a meeting with my friend Natalie Foster from the Economic Security Project. And she said, um, hey, Mayor, have you heard of guaranteed income? I said, oh, yeah, we, we're, we, I'm familiar with it. And then she said, we're looking for a city to partner with to pilot a guaranteed income. And then I said, oh, yeah, you know, I have a task force. We have a task force seriously looking at this and figuring out how to implement it. Like, really trying to sell her, like, we're thinking about it. We ended up working together. And again, it was just a politically different time. And, and, and Stockton was just recovering from bankruptcy. So that's why that audit stuff was so important. And I knew we did not have, like, we just did not have money, extra mm -hmm. money. We could pay for what we could pay for. And then they said, you know, we'll do it philanthropically. So they put in a million dollars and we're like, well, with a million dollars, we can't serve everyone. But we get to 125 people and build an evidence case and lay the groundwork mm -hmm. for a policy. Um, so that's what we did. So we, it, it, it's funny now because 
through the group I started called Marriage for Guaranteed Income. Every marriage is in the Guaranteed Income pilot now. It's like not even, it's not even not noteworthy. Now people get like annoyed, like, oh, great, another basic income pilot. But back then, no one was doing it. <laughs> so it was like, wow. And it was a little bit scary because I'm not an economist. And I had all these economists like trying to battle rap me on Twitter or writing op-eds about how stupid the idea it was. I had um, folks, even leaders in the Democratic Party, were saying that's not the way to go. And I was like, I know I'm not smarter than all these people. Maybe some of them, but not all of them. So am I missing something or are they missing? Like, like what, what, what? How does everyone think this is a bad idea? And I'm like, hmm, I think this could work. And in doing so, I realized what we've been talking about a lot on this podcast, that part of my fundamental belief is that if government is nothing but people, the most important investment a government can make is in people. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that, that's, that's how we govern or how we should govern. I saw this stat yesterday that went over the newly approved defense budget. Mm. And, you know, it's like $760 billion. And it just shows like child care would be $55 billion a year. Healthcare increases would be $120 billion. We have the money and people say we can't spend it. And so it doesn't surprise me that economists were saying, well, you can't spend money this way. It's like, well, says who and why? We actually have the money to pay for all of these things. And and it was so inspiring as, you know, an Angelino and also as a fan of yours to watch what you were doing with the UBI pilot program in Stockton because it has papered the data for UBI programs all over the place. And, and it references what you said earlier. If you can take out of the bucket of stress that people experience, the stressors over survival. <laughs> people can then apply stress to pressure test their dreams. They can apply stress to pressure test small businesses. They mm -hmm. can apply stress to open community centers. They can do other things. And, and that I find to be so inspiring. It was your work that got me you know, out there advocating in the public for the stop, for the Compton pledge, mm. you know, to, to get a UBI program in Compton. And people said like, you didn't grow up in Compton. What do you care? And I was like, yeah, but I went to USC. I bordered Compton. These are my neighbors. I don't care if I actually live next door to people or not. I want people to have room to dream mm. instead of lives of worry. And mm. we should want that for all of us, that should be the tenant of our of our life, of our of our communities, of our activism. Why wouldn't I want you to have better? Why? And you see what LA is doing now too. LA City and County. So LA City is doing a thirty-five million dollar basic income pilot for a thousand families, and LA County is doing a forty million dollar. Um, program for a thousand families. It's um, incredible. And 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 I think for listeners, what what I hope people take from it is that again, courage begets courage, and mm -hmm. it started really small. Like the the yeah. issue was like poverty. How do you solve poverty? And that's extremely yeah. overwhelming. And we said we can't solve poverty, but let's try a basic income for hundred and twenty five people. Yeah. And starting there has led to the wonderful Compton Pledge, the things in L.A., like literally 25 pilots being led by mayors and 80 guaranteed income pilots in this country. Yes. And a child tax credit, which is a yes. guaranteed income for families with children. But it literally started 
with a hundred and it started with no right answer. It started <laughs> without knowing if it would work or not. It started with the risk of looking dumb. And I and I tell people all the time that part of leadership or part of making change is you have to be will you have to find things you're so passionate about, you're willing to be wrong for them. Yeah. Like I might get I care about this issue. So this is my answer. And if I get it wrong, I'll iterate for it. And I think oftentimes we have all this pressure to be right. And that paralyzes mm-hmm. us. So we do nothing. And then what you said, I'm going to steal. And I want to make sure I got it right. You said, I want people to live lives of dreams and not lives of worry. Mm-hmm. And that was actually, Sophia, I'm being emotional thinking about it now. That's what I learned the most from basic income work, from doing this work, is that, because, you know, you grew up in poverty, but I was a child, right? Like, I wasn't the adult in poverty. And I've never, even though mayors don't make a lot of money, I never worried about, like, everything was on auto pay. (laughs) You know? So, so, So when I would see other people my age, other people in my community who said, by the sheer luck of being one of the 125 people given $500 a month, I am now a better parent. Mm-hmm. I am now healthier. Yeah. I am now able to stay home and not have to go to work during COVID. Like, it, it, it was inspiring, but also made me very sad. Like, how we divulge as a society where it's acceptable for us to have the means to solve a problem, but we're fine with it not being solved in a, in a problem that would make the solution that make all of our lives better. Because if yeah. you're dreaming about starting a small business, that might be the small business that employs me or my kids. Exactly. Or my- exactly. <laughs> and that's what people miss. They say, well, people shouldn't have handouts. You should work harder. If we do a little, we get a lot. If we invest in families, they invest eightfold in the economy. If we paid women equally, our GDP would grow by 12 whole ass points. We are missing $1.4 trillion out of the U.S. economy because we subjugate women. Hello? Like, if if we put in, we return in multiples. And, and that's the thing I wish we were clear on. But, but what it is, is it's fear-mongering for change. The same people who wanted to publish your mugshot from your worst day want to say that People are in poverty because they're not working hard enough, because they don't want us to know that poverty is a designed system. And it's on us to figure out how to dream bigger for each other. I know that if other people around me are doing well, I will do well. I know that when I do well, I want to make sure other people do. So when I get an opportunity, I figure out how I can hold the door open for as many people I love as possible. And you doing well doesn't mean I have to do bad. Exactly. Like you doing well has no material well-being on my mm-hmm. success or failure. Like you doing good doesn't hurt me. But we've been cultured to think there's a finite bucket of resources because the people who control the buckets don't want us to know that while they keep our bucket the same size, their buckets are growing. And their buckets are growing because they invest, because mm-hmm. they literally look at things as long-term investments. And yep. And that's what I and I for my folks I've gotten to be on the side of basic income who come from that world, it's been literally that conversation, what you said. It's like, you guys, take the, if you don't, if the humanitarian argument's not enough for you, think about in terms of investing. Like, think about, like, you put $6,000 in something and you get all this stuff from it. Like, why would you not? 
Mm-hmm. Could we pay for it anyway on the back end for not investing? We pay for it in hospital bills, incarceration exactly. costs, lost productivity. We pay for it in sort of problems that probably haven't been solved yet because the answer is with someone who's working two jobs and driving tests and driving um, Uber yeah. and has no time to think. The, yeah. the cure for cancer is probably with someone who's like doing domestic work at someone's house right now mm-hmm. who's brilliant, but just can never have the time to even think and try because she has to... Mm-hmm. Work for a meager existence. And and, yeah. and then I think the last thing I'll say, because I, I, could, I could wax poetic on this all day, <laughs> is that I do think we're, we all are deserving of more than just a bare minimum eat meager existence. Yes. Like, like I'm so the, sick of a living wage. God, <laughs> I'm sick of that term. Let's And we're out here advocating for it. People deserve to make a living wage. Fuck a living wage. I want people to make a thriving wage. I want people to make a dreaming wage. I want people to be able to do more than work, eat, and sleep. Yeah. What about, as you said, taking your family out on the weekends? What about going to a museum to learn something? I think about, you know, the era my dad came up in when there weren't trillion-dollar tax cuts for the super wealthy and the irony, like people always yell at me. They're like, you're an actress. Yeah. You're one of those people. I'm like, bro, I'm not. Like the super wealthy are in a class. You can't even imagine how much money these people have. That's who we're talking about when we say tax the rich. Like, And by the way, if I was rich, like if I had money like those people, I'd be happy to pay my taxes. What are you talking about? It's like. Yeah, I don't think people get the difference between like 1% and 0.01%. They don't. Like that's, they don't get it. It's a different world. And, and it's interesting to me to look at the landscape. Cause like when I, you know, my dad talks about how when he was my age, you know, CEOs made something like 125 times what their average worker made. And look, if you're the CEO of a company that employs 8 million people, like I get it, you have a big job. (laughs) But now CEOs make like 2,700 times what the average worker makes, and the average worker still makes what they were making when the CEO only made 125 times what they made or 60 times or whatever. And I'm like, that's why you used to be able to be middle class and have like a a cottage on a lake somewhere and two cars and like a decent existence. And now CEOs have three jets and everybody else is like living in multifamily homes trying to figure out like who gets to take the car on a Saturday And I think there's just a way that we could equalize it a little more. I'm not saying don't be successful. I'm not saying don't be a CEO. I'm not even saying don't be rich. I'm saying don't be like an aristocrat turning your employees into like, you know, Marie Antoinette era peasants who are suffering while you're like throwing food away because it's funny to you. Like, what are we doing? How did we get here? And it's also what's... And people say people are self-interested. So I'm just confused because if I had that much money, I would look at history and recognize that's just not sustainable. That mm-hmm. all those stories end very badly. They end in some sort of revolution. They, they like, like people just So what don't... you're saying is you would remember that the guillotine happened and you wouldn't yeah, want to be that person. Yeah, 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 I get it. fix something. Like, look, like, like, <laughs> maybe I don't need 50 billion. I'm cool with one. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, maybe one is enough. When you're in the bees, I think you're good. Like, you know, Elon Musk is out here trying to say that, you know, taxing people's wealth is ridiculous. I'm like, bro, you have a trillion dollars. You're not even going to miss it. 
You you like, can't even do anything without a mouth. Like no, it's too crazy. Before you this do anything, your money's guys, making more money on it. So like, what are you talking? This is why these about? guys think they want to colonize space, and I'm sitting here thinking like, first of all, maybe look at history and stop colonizing. Second of all, <laughs> you're telling me you want to go to Mars. So what you're saying is you want to go to prison. You will never go outside. You will never hug a tree. You will never smell fresh air. There will be no ocean. There will be nothing that makes this planet magical. What you're telling me is you just want to build yourself a prison cell. I know it's going to look like an art museum, but Mm. you're still going to be in prison. Mm. And you don't even know. You've never experienced it. You've never visited someone who's been stuck in the carceral system. You've never been without. So you don't Mm. know that you're building a cell for yourself. You think it's a dream and it's just going to be a nightmare. Why don't you fix the planet we live on? Why don't mm. you support the people who live here? Why don't why don't you campaign for clean air and water so that our children can go outside and breathe? Mm. Like how have we missed the plot wow. so much? Wow. Wow. And it But but think of the irony, right? Like and mm-hmm. says like wow. Like you are it's it's almost like a fable. It's almost like some like yeah story where it's hard growing up where you take 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 and you get 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 and the place you're leaving is so coercive so you build for yourself in a different place mm-hmm. something that's actually imprisoning you because the mm-hmm. issue wasn't the people or the earth it was like your greed and your insatiable appetite for more well and how bifurcated you became from your own society like yeah of course you think you want to move to another planet if you don't go outside and meet people ever if you're only surrounded by whatever your version of your prep school friends, you only have a tiny piece of the information. What if you suck out, what if you went out in the world and chose to seek out other people's experiences and perspectives? What if you spent time with families in Stockton or Compton? What if you, what if you went to the indigenous community spaces in Utah or Arizona and learned what these people who don't have internet connectivity or addresses need, the people who literally deserve to be here most, who we have segmented the worst in our society, what if they had access to healthcare? What if they had access to actual voting rights? What if, what if that's who the most powerful people in our society were focused on? What could we do then? And, you know, people ask and, and, you know, the Breitbart people yell about, like, what do you know? And, and you know, what's not lost on me is people in my industry, we exist in a system. If I make money, my whole team makes money. Whatever money I make, I keep 20% of it because everybody eats when I eat, including the United States government, by the way. I pay way <laughs> more taxes than Elon Musk, and it's not lost on me. But but that's true. Like, when when... When I make money, this person and this person and this person, everybody gets a percentage. Everybody gets a cut. And a beautiful existence and survival is possible on that. And so when I look at people who ha- who who would sob if they had my bank account tomorrow, they'd be like, what happened to my life? I consider myself to be so privileged. I'm so proud of, of what I've built and made by myself with my hands and I, and I look at them and I'm like, what about the team you could be supporting? And you'd still mm. be so rich. You'd still have planes. You'd mm. still be good. Like, you know, mm. I had somebody on, <laughs> I came home yesterday from my job in Toronto and this guy next to me was like so surprised that, you know, I was in the aisle seat in row 24 and I was like, 
<laughs> bro, yeah. You know, holiday flights are expensive. What do you want from me? <laughs> and he was just laughing. He thought it was so funny. And I thought, you know, I'm okay. I feel great. I mm. I know I'm not by any means perfect or I don't know everything, but but I see programs like the one you enacted. I see things we can do when we show up together. Mm. I've seen what I'm capable of rather than saying like, well, I could write a check this big for a charity this year. What if I donate my birthday to that charity and we mm. raise 10 times this much money? You know, what if we do things as a team and everything I've ever done as a team has brought me immense joy. Mm. And when I get too stuck in being just little me by myself, individual in the world, I feel isolated and sad and I lose the plot mm. a little bit. So mm. I don't know. I think if 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 any of us can encourage, um, you know, dreams over worry, community over self, mm. we're doing something really special. And And yeah, I know that it can put a target on your back. I mean, I know that everything you did as mayor made a lot of people try to come for you and and run a lot of weirdness against you and um, and that you did experience that loss. But look what it's led to, you know? Even you sitting now as a special advisor to Governor Newsom, you're working on issues for the state. You proved something in your hometown that one of the, you know, 50 states in our country said, oh, we need that guy on our team. So, so I, the slingshot, the loss into the bigger propulsion. What is that bigger propulsion for you now? What is this new phase now? Yeah, I think it's really sort of unburdened by what's been or sort of political limitations. Oh, is really Unburdened sort of, is a beautiful word. Wow. It's really just um, using all the tools from media um, to storytelling to policy to um, innovation, to to create a world that has opportunity for everyone and that sees and affirms everyone's basic human dignity. Um, mm. So I, it's just, I'm able to do so much more now because I have this complete control over my time. So I could do stuff wow. with narrative. I could work with other mayors in other cities. I could help the governor. I could help companies. I can go places. I could, I, there's so much more I can do because I don't have to do the potholes. I don't have to do the IT mm. system. I don't have to do the audit. So everything that makes sense looking backwards and looking backwards almost a year to the date, I'm still, I'm, I'm not happy at the way I lost, mm. but I am happy for what the loss taught me and sort of all the real just blessings that have come my way since and the real yeah. opportunity and also the real affirmation and validation that the issue wasn't with sort of the work. The yeah. issue wasn't with performance. That wasn't it. And that it was also a reminder that my purpose is bigger than the title. And my mm -hmm. purpose is not tied to a position. Like the positions and the opportunities are a means to an end. Right. But the end is really the purpose and to never lose sight of that. So I'm glad I learned that at 30. And not like at 60 or 70. Yeah. Well, and it makes me excited for where you're going, especially seeing that purpose and having that lesson. At the moment you did, you know, you mentioned earlier, it was while you were writing your book. And I mean, <laughs> I, I assume everyone sitting, listening, you know, at home or on their commute is like very ready to read your book. Uh, look it up, folks. It's called The Deeper the Roots. It was published just this November. I mean... 
writing it while in such an immense phase of growth and a phase that came with a reckoning as well, what was that like? What, what motivated you to write it when you did? And, and how does it feel to have it in the world now? Yeah, well, it's going to sound really basic, but what motivated me to write it was um, the birth of my first child, our first child, because childcare mm-hmm. is expensive. And I was like, well, I make this much as mayor, you make this much as a high school counselor. How long, where, I don't see where the extra two thousand, one two thousand a month for childcare is going to come from. <laughs> like, I just don't, like, how are we going to do it? Yeah, where does it come um, from? And I was like, oh, ha, but I have this book deal. And if I write this book, I get my advance and that'd be enough to pay for childcare. <laughs> so that was really what started it. And But then while writing it, it, it just allowed me to reflect on my parents. I mean, it was just a, a very a great space. And I wrote most mm-hmm. of it in 2020, mm-hmm. which is just such a crazy year. But it's for me, one of the most still years I've had because I was home. Wow. I was governing and leading to a pandemic, but I wasn't flying everywhere. I was home. I was every night. I was in my bed. Every, you know, and I, I, I never, since I was 16 years old, had had that. Yeah. So it provided a real sort of forcing function to think and about what do I want my children to know, think mm-hmm. about the city, connect dots. But then in October, it, the book was done. It was a good book. Most of it, as is, was written in October. But then when I lost, it unlocked something else because it, it, it that first trajectory of the book was tough upbringing, couple mistakes in the middle, but everything's good. Right. This is a win. This is a win. You do this. You do this. You do this. It's a win. You end on a high note. Yeah. And that's not life. That might be a movie, but that's not life. Mm. So losing is like, oh shoot, this is not a fairy. This is a not a fairy tale ending. It ends with an uncertainty with a confidence that better is coming, but it's before I knew what this year would hold. It's before mm-hmm. I knew I'm special advisor to the governor. It's before I knew 60 marriages would be doing basic income. It, it was last November. <laughs> All I knew was that I lost. I needed to figure out what was next. And writing from that kind of point of view and perspective, I think, sort of reading it now, I'm like, wow. If for nothing else, the loss just made the book feel to me much more real. Yeah. And much more like, shit, this is hard work. You can do all that and still lose. And how do you keep your confidence? You can do all that and still lose. And how do you keep your faith? How do you deal with loss? It's easy to say everything works out for good. But what happens when it's bad? And you don't know what the good is yet. And how do you talk? So it was very cheap therapy, honestly. (laughs) It just gave me time to reflect. And, and, and think, um, and also it's a process. Like, that I miss a sign? And right now, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should realize this. Oh, yeah, maybe when maybe when mm-hmm. the entire city council voted against me um, on mass at mandates, maybe that should have been a red flag. And it should have been. Since I was on city council, I had only lost one vote in eight wow. years. And I don't put things on the agenda if I, if I don't have the votes. So when every single person voted against it, I was mayor. I should have said something's wrong, but instead I was like, oh, they're scared of COVID. Like, like, <laughs> but then writing it, I was like, no, that was an inflection point. That was a time you should have thought and called the campaign team. Like, something's weird going on. Are, mm-hmm. are, are we sure do we need to pivot strategy? But so the, I think the clarity of, of, of looking backwards was, was very yeah. helpful. It's interesting because that kind of clarity that you mention really um, makes me think about the backside we were referencing, you know, what we've seen um, 
we're seeing it. After defeating Trump in 2020, we're watching what's happening, you know, the Virginia election and, and what might be coming in the midterms and and the way that this this right-wing disinformation machine seems to, like, keep it coming, whereas progress, proving progress, is slower because it actually requires legwork. It's not just, you know, viral tweets. Um, I'm curious what you think is important for us to remember as we move forward, because there's so many lessons in your book about not giving up, about how we can illuminate ourselves and our communities. And I just wonder, what do you see when you talk about those inflection points, those lessons? How do you think we need to better talk to each other to keep our you know, our foot on the gas toward better rather than going backwards. Yeah, my, my grandma used to always say, and I didn't understand it, and I'm still understanding it now as I get older, but she would always say, don't get weary in well-doing. Mm. For in due season, you will reap a harvest when you if you faint not. Um, and, and it's just a reminder that, that it doesn't say when, it just says in due season, like when it's time. And also this idea that you you can't faint like it like and I think that last clause if you faint not is an admission that fainting or quitting makes sense that <laughs> fainting and quitting is a logical response to waiting for a harvest but but you'll miss out if you quit mm-hmm. so that's always been helpful and I think number two just learning from those valley experiences I I think sort of you could get to the mountaintop, but without the perspective gained from the valley, you don't really appreciate sort of, you don't have the skills to climb to get to the mountain. You don't appreciate it once you get there. So I think yeah. regardless of what happens in 22 or et cetera, let's take stock and not just be angry about what happened or excited about what happened, but let's learn. Mm. What can we learn? What can we do better? What What's the lesson here to prepare us for, for what's next? Yeah. How do you, as you look forward, think about what you want your new mission to be, you know, what are the marching orders you're giving to yourself? How, how do you want to go into the next year inspiring other people? Yeah. Yeah. The next year I want to be laser focused on having a through line between everything I do be about just uplifting human dignity, mm-hmm. about giving people the courage to dream about a world where everyone has enough um, to dream about a world where we don't have to have, pervasive poverty. We don't have to have endemic homelessness. We don't have to have ubiquitous white supremacy and racism. Like, oh, oh, oh. And just remind people that that's what we deserve. That yes, we're fighting for it, but we're not fighting for it to prove that we deserve it. We're fighting for it because we do deserve it. And and, and that um, there is an entitlement to dignity. There is an entitlement to self-determination. There is an entitlement to live fully human. And reminding people, we're not fighting for things that we don't deserve, for things that are crazy. We're fighting for what's ours, our birthright, our, our, our gift for being born on this very beautiful but messy planet. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I I like the idea of a of a true and positive entitlement. That feels like something we need to learn how to claim. Yeah, because we often think of entitlements as bad thing, but no, we mm-hmm. are entitled to some things. Life, mm-hmm. liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what they wrote all those years ago. And I believe mm-hmm. it. 
dignity, respect, opportunity. Yeah. I'm really curious. So much of who you are is centered on this idea of progress and the kind of progress that honors who people are, where they've been, all of the facets of themselves. And, you know, I started this podcast to meditate on and inquire how to work on and within our own potential for progress. So I wonder, especially as we're now, you know, wrapping up a year and a big year, what feels like a work in progress in your life for you in this moment of reflection? Yeah, the biggest work in progress for me is sort of showing up fully in all the different hats I wear Mm. as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a son, as um, a leader, as a advisor, as a strategist, as a, Mm. you know, how do I make sure I'm I'm showing up in my best self in all those different roles? Uh, It's still a work in progress. Um, And in the book I end with, one of my favorite scriptures that says, um, basically about being a work in progress. It says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in me will continue that work until completion. <laughs> and mm. that's absolutely um, sort of where I am. And, and, and yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm confident that sort of the Michael Tubbs you hear now will be even wiser and better in 2022. Yeah. Um, with more lessons and more insights and, and mm-hmm. hopefully a, a more humanity and more of the language to articulate that, that, that humanity. Yeah, it's beautiful. It makes me hopeful for what's to come if we can center that kind of wholeness in our conversations, as you said, to to create a rising tide that lifts all ships, to serve and center our stricken communities, our communities in poverty, you know, our black and brown communities, women, all of the people who've always been pressed into margins, if they can be the people for whom we create our most inclusive policy, life gets better for all of us, for everybody. And you have helped lead a charge that has clarified how to do that in a way that centers that entitlement to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Mm. And you've proven that it's possible both as a moral core and also as a fiscal policy, Mm. which is what is required. And, And I'm deeply grateful, you know, for your charge, for your example, for your book, my God, and and for the work that you continue to do, because my hope is that it will it will help to get the yelling that often happens in the margins on those extremes we talked about earlier to calm down and bring people to meet hmm. for a sane conversation about how to serve our communities best. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for coming on today and, you know, blessing us with your time and your words and your ideas. It's, um, it's a conversation I will continue to cherish. So thank you. Thank you.